The Being an Engineer podcast is a repository for industry knowledge and a tool through which engineers learn about and connect with relevant companies, technologies, people, resources, and opportunities. Enjoy the show. It's not good enough for you to do your part on the project and the, and the project fail. You have to go beyond that. If you see the project failing and you see why it's failing or you're, you're told by your project manager or whomever else that is failing because of this particular area, then step up and do something in that area. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Being an Engineer podcast. Our guest today is Tom Wilkie, who is a product development professional and has worked both in startups and billion-dollar corporations to bring new products to market. In fact, over the years, he has brought over 25 significant new products to market, an impressive feat indeed. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Tell me, how did you get started in engineering? What what was it that was attractive to you about engineering? I am always interested in taking things apart and putting them back together, fixing things. Uh, ever since I was little, my my grandfather um, had a um, had a uh, blacksmith business back in the twenties, and uh, he lived on a farm, a rural farm out in northern Wisconsin, and he was known as the guy who could fix anything. And when I was little, he died when I was quite young, but when I was little, he used to crank the the uh, blower on his hearth where he would do metalworking. And he was rumored to be able to repair drive, drive shafts, among other things. Wow. So he was a, an incredibly talented fellow um, who was able to do anything. And I was around that when I was little, and my father liked to work on cars, and I liked to work on bicycles. And so I was always doing things mechanically in the backyard or with my father or whatever on the farm. And um, as I got older, uh, I found that I was good in math and, and enjoyed science. And so it was kind of a natural steering that the, the high school counselors would tell you, hey, you like to do this kind of stuff and you're good in math and science, you ought to go into engineering. My father was not, I'm, I'm the first generation of it, college educated people in my family. My father was not college educated, but he had a good job and, and uh, worked himself up to a, a, a responsible position at a paper company. And uh, my mother was uh, also a very competent and hardworking person. And so I inherited that hardworking skill, but I didn't know anything about engineering other than what my father would tell me about the engineers he worked with in the paper mill. But I was steered in that direction and I found as soon as I got to college that it was a good fit for me and, and I really enjoyed it. Terrific. And w were your parents always um, uh, very supportive of, of you going to college and pursuing an, a degree in engineering? Yeah, absolutely. They, the expectation was, I have one brother who's uh, two years older, and the expectation always was that we were bright kids, we were going to go to college no matter what. So uh, my parents were, were of that mindset that they saw college as the stepping stone to the next level of not only um, material wealth, but to contributions to society and, and steered us, uh, supported us in that direction. I won't say steered us in that direction, but supported us for whatever we decided to do. 
Wonderful, wonderful. I'm going to ha have a couple of questions for you about education later on. But before we okay. get to that, uh, you worked at a company called Iomega in the early 2000s, developing removable magnetic and optical data storage products. I, I wondered, can you tell us a little bit more about that? What what are magnetic and optical data storage products? Uh, magnetic, so data storage is you know what you put your data on, right? So the disk drives, tape drives. Um, optical storage devices, CDs, DVDs, Blu-ray discs. Um, those are the physical embodiments of, of digital data storage. And so I got involved in data storage oh, maybe in the late 80s um, or so, um, working on optical data storage back before CDs were, were the norm de rigueur. Um, CDs came out, were invented around 1982 or so by Philips and became the standard for, for music um, in the 80s and, and became ubiquitous eventually. That kind of data storage is, is one type of data storage. Magnetic data storage was the competitor to that. And so magnetic data storage, which is how you stay store data on disk drives and tape drives, um, was much older. And optical data storage was viewed as it's going to be the next thing. Eventually all data storage was going to be optical. That was the thought because the data densities were much higher when optical data storage became common as in CDs. And I worked on optical data storage. Actually, it was the mid-80s when I started working on that. Um, and it was viewed to be likely to completely replace magnetic data storage within 20 years or so. Well, we all know now that it hasn't happened. They each found their niche. Magnetic data storage became so advanced from a physical standpoint, the data densities and the data transfer rates and the data reliability became so phenomenal with data, with magnetic, magnetic data storage that still today, disk drives are the norm for storing large amounts of disk drives, magnetic disk drives. Tape um, is still around, but it's been displaced to a large degree. Optical data storage never really got a big niche except for in audio and video recording, as I mentioned. Um, in CDs and then DVDs and then Blu-ray discs. Those are all optical data storage devices. But other than that niche, optical data storage never really made it for general purpose. Um, I was going to say that uh, these days, all, not all, but much of data storage has moved to the cloud, but that's not even really an accurate statement because ultimately the cloud is a, a, a bunch of mag magnetic data storage units, right? That's right. It's a bunch of servers sitting in some location that Google or Amazon owns where yeah. they have data banks, huge numbers of, of disk drives typically. And, uh, and another thing that, go ahead. I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but one other thing that's displaced a lot of data storage now is solid state, solid state memory. Mm. So solid state is now taking large parts of the data storage market, especially those that were taken up by some of the things that I worked on um, back in the 80s and 90s, namely flexible media. iOmega was famous for the zip drive back in the day, and uh, that uh, data storage type was on a a flexible disk, like a floppy disk. That's almost completely gone these days. After after Iomega, you went on to participate in a startup called InPhase Technologies, where again you focused on uh, developing optical data storage products. What what were the differences between Iomega and InPhase Technologies? InPhase was trying to store data holographically, which leads to uh, much higher data density. So you know, with a holographic data storage, you could store data three-dimensionally. So you can take a disk that's say, um, 
75 millimeters thick and and uh, cram a bunch more data in there because you can use not only the surface as is used in conventional magnetic and, and optical data storage, but you can use features below the surface to, to store data. Got it. Okay. Uh, a little bit later in your career, now now working at the medical device company Covidian, uh, you developed a new advanced manufacturing engineering function to transfer new products from uh, from design centers in the U.S. and Ireland, I guess, to sites in Mexico, Ireland, and the Far East. I was curious about what that process is. Could you could you speak a little bit about that? In any multinational company, they have multiple locations. So typically, manufacturing is centered in locations where they have some advantage, cost from a labor standpoint, Mexico, uh, technology advantage from infrastructure, Ireland, um, other places in the world, in the Far East. So uh, the typical process step, which is common in any multinational company, is a design center will design a product and then it will be transferred from that design center to a manufacturing location. The, the transfer for a medical product is a little more complicated because of the medical regulations, the compliance, complying with good manufacturing processes and FDA requirements dictate that there's a lot of additional work that has to be done to transfer. And um, the group that we established was to uh, embed engineers who were familiar with the design aspect and the manufacturing aspects so that we could get a jump on getting the product from the design center to the manufacturing center as quickly as possible so we could bring it to the customer as quickly as possible. And how did you find engineers that had both of those those um, skill sets? Because typically, you know, you have a, a, a design engineer who doesn't really focus on manufacturing, and then you might have a manufacturing engineer who doesn't really focus on design. How did you find the individuals that had both of those skill sets? Yeah, it's a specialized skill set. And just to give you a little of my background, so I, when I, my first job out of college was with um, Honeywell, and they had a program called the Manufacturing Management Program. And being an engineer who was very interested in building things, I'd always been interested in building things, as I mentioned earlier, since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a manufacturer. I wanted to be a manufacturing engineer. And so I, I enrolled in this program with Honeywell where they trained us a, a lot of things about the complete company. The, the training program was a very well-known program that was started by General Electric years before, still in existence, um, where you are expected to rotate to different assignments in, within the company and also go to graduate school. As a result of rotating to different assignments, I got exposure to design engineering and manufacturing engineering. So I had that expertise from my training as part of Honeywell. That was fairly unusual, I found. Most people, most engineers view the design engineering as sort of the elite side of the engineering picture. And manufacturing engineers are usually frowned on. And I viewed it as the opposite. I viewed the manufacturing engineer. The right-headed stepchild. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I always viewed manufacturing engineering as the elite. We were the guys who knew how to not only make this stuff you know, to get the designs right, but we know how to build this stuff too. So I always did it in, in a different mindset. And I found other engineers who did as well. So typically, uh, it is required that somebody will have spent time in manufacturing. An engineer to be good at that in that role had to have spent some time in manufacturing. And uh, so usually I would I would look for, when hiring people for those roles, I would look for somebody who has, was, was heavier on the manufacturing side than the design side, because I thought anybody can learn design 
manufacturing is a lot harder. <laughs> <laughs> and did you find that that was the case, that learning manufacturing was more challenging? No, but generally. And that was a good attitude to have because we were often in the role of telling the design guys that, no, no, you can't design it that way because it will drive the yields into the tank or drive the cost through the roof or both. And so you have to redesign it. So convincing the design engineers took a lot of talent, took a lot of not only skill with understanding what the manufacturing side was, but also understanding what the design possibilities were. Uh, in that uh, that program management role, you you facilitated bringing uh, 15 new products to market in a division that apparently had not recently brought any new products to market. That's a, a really impressive feat. And uh, can you share a little bit about how you were able to push out so many new products during that time? A couple of things. One is diligence. Uh, one was putting together a good project team, and one was getting the backing of the corporation that we had to do this. So part of it was necessity. The corporation realized that we haven't come up with new products. Our competitors were beating us in the marketplace. We just had to do this. So anytime uh, I ran up against a brick wall in whatever area it was, I could use that as, as the club to say, okay, if you want to block this product, you will, you will cause this company to go <laughs> to continue to flounder. And we were not floundering really, but we weren't growing at the rate we wanted to. And we were beating, being beaten by competitors who were coming out with products that were newer, better, had, had better features and lower cost than, than we did. So part of it was necessity. And then a bigger part of it was putting in place the processes and the people that would get us there. So uh, as I mentioned, we established this program management office whose job was to put in place the discipline to really get these products to market. And we put in place the mindset and the processes to help the other uh, divisions in the company, the other departments in the company, do their part to, to bring this product to market. I imagine these were fairly large, complex processes, but is there any way that you can distill some of them down to the key components and, and, and share with us what some of those components were uh, in the hopes that, that uh, listeners can take those key elements and apply them to their own companies, their own uh, product development programs? That's a, that's a very good question, and I don't know that I can give you a good answer. I'll give you a couple of things that are top of mind to me. One, so one of the, one of the prime lessons is, is part of what Astrid mentioned in, in her talk with you is to make sure you have a project team that is pulling in the same direction. And we did that by establishing teams that were very definite, definite, uh, answering to the project manager, not necessarily from a organizational standpoint, but from an accountability standpoint. So making sure that every organization had a had a person or maybe more than one person who was assigned to the project whose responsibility it was to get this job done. They may have other um, assignments as well, but when they were assigned to a project, their future was dependent upon this product becoming successful. That was, that was one of the big things. Another big thing was making sure we had the processes in place so people knew what to expect have the proper amount of reviews and oversight. And part of the medical business is required to have independent reviewers. So assuring that we had an independent reviewer who was gonna make a contribution and not just be uh, you know, a, a fly on the wall was an important part of it. So training the independent reviewers so that they could actually do something and contribute to the project and, and not be a hindrance, but be a help to the project. Um, that was another big piece of the puzzle. 
And then the final piece of the puzzle I'll mention right now was making sure people understood the regulations part of it, what was required from a regulatory standpoint. So it wasn't okay for the engineer to assume that the regulatory team member would take care of everything for them. They had to be actively participating in the regulatory piece of it or in the custom input piece of it or whatever that was outside of their, their boundary. I always told people, my project managers included, I did not want you to assume that your responsibilities ended at the end of your organizational chart box. <laughs> I don't want anybody to assume that just because your responsibility is shown to be this thing in the organizational chart does not mean that you cannot help somebody in some other area. And in fact, I was always willing to help anybody in any area and would, would be very willing to develop the expertise if I had to, to contribute in some other area. And how did you help people do that? Because it's one thing to say, um, you know, okay, team, I, I want to make sure that you help the, the entire organization, not just your little box, but how do you help people or motivate people to actually do that? Yeah, motivation, I think, is the key. Um, my expectation is that any trained engineer can do just about anything. And so there's no limitation on what an engineer can be trained to do if that engineer decides is properly motivated to do that. And so a lot of it was about motivation. A lot of it was about giving the team the common charter that just because you're successful doesn't mean you're going to be successful professionally if the team is not successful. It's not good enough for you to do your part on the project and the, and the project fail. You have to go beyond that. If you see the project failing and you see why it's failing or you're, you're told by your project manager or whomever else that is failing because of this particular area, then step up and do something in that area. Because I know you can. I know you're able to. That's um, I, I love that 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 attitude. Did you find um, or, or what tools did you find that that allowed you to impose that motivation? You know, <laughs> did it just come down to to money? Or I, I know that money is not the best motivator, certainly not for everyone. Uh, what 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 did you find was effective at, at uh, motivating people? In my business, a lot of it is altruism. A lot of it is the belief that we are doing something that is better for mankind. And many people, not everybody, but most people that are in the medical business are there because we want to make a contribution that is for the betterment of the common population. And so that was a, that was a good motivator to, to fall back on that. Is, hey, don't you want to help your grandmother or, or a pregnant woman or, you know, something, some, something else in society? Don't you want to make this successful? Because it's going to be better for whatever the the altruistic part of you says you want to make better in the world. That was a big part of it. And you also mentioned money. Money is also an important one. And I pushed for and was unsuccessful getting direct control over the uh, the contributors from other departments. So we had this program management office, but we were not directly in control of anybody's salary. So I pushed for getting more control on that. So we did get to the point where we were inputting to their performance reviews, but we were not directly contributing to their salary. But we did establish in some cases um, bonuses for meeting certain milestones that would be shared among the team or, or some kind of payout at the end of a project. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to take just a quick break here and share with the listeners that testfixturedesign.com 
is where you can learn more about how we help medical device engineering teams who need turnkey custom test fixtures or automated equipment to assemble, inspect, characterize, or perform verification or validation testing on their devices. We're speaking with Tom Wilkie today. And uh, something, Tom, that I saw on your LinkedIn profile that I thought was really interesting was uh, you said that you are, you are known for your sincerity. And I wondered, can you elaborate a little bit on how that has helped you work with engineering teams over the years? Yeah. So that's something I, I didn't discover until later in life, that people took me seriously. And I don't know why that is exactly. Um, but, uh, you know, I like to joke around and I like to get to know people. But I'm a pretty serious guy generally. And so that comes across. I, I realized that that came across to most people. And in my performance reviews, most of the time uh, we get something to the effect that, you know, people take you seriously. So um, that is a personality trait I think I kind of lucked into. And then I learned to exploit it maybe to some degree. And uh, I learned that it's important to me to, to feel like I'm, I'm doing something. I'm sincerely, I sincerely have the desire to make the world a better place. And that came up very early in my career when I was working at Honeywell. I was working in the computer business. And I went to my manager, his name was John Kowalski. He was a mechanical engineering manager. And I said, uh, I don't feel like we're designing computers and I don't feel like I'm making enough of a contribution to society. And he said to me something that stuck with me. He said, okay, I get that. Here's how I look at it. You're designing a computer that some cancer researcher is going to use to compile his cancer data, and he's going to get better results because of your contribution to this computer. I took that as okay. It wasn't quite satisfying enough. And eventually, I had to move into the medical business because I felt like <laughs> that's how I could make more direct contribution. But everybody, every engineer does make a contribution that helps society at large. And getting engineers to realize that uh, I think is, is especially difficult for a lot of engineers. And I sincerely believe that. And when I, when I say that to somebody, people don't, you know, don't blow me off. They, they, they believe what I say. Well, I agree 100%. Uh, in my opinion, engineers are what make the world go round. We, we are the problem solvers that allow for all the, the functions that, uh, you know, general society has come to, to rely on these days. Absolutely. And I, I tell people, you know, somebody designed that ambulance that took the guy to the hospital and somebody designed the right. bridge that the ambulance drove over. And those are all engineers. Right, right. Well, you've managed quite a few uh, engineering teams over the years. And uh, we've talked a little bit about this indirectly. I'll just ask you very directly now. What Are there some tools and strategies that, that uh, you can share with us that have allowed you to be an effective engineering manager? I, I guess one of them is just being sincere. Uh, you also talked about finding the right motivation. Anything else that comes to mind? Confidence. One of the confidence. things that hmm. confidence and competence. Both are quite important. So if you want to lead a team, you have to demonstrate an engineering team. Engineers typically are, are pretty uh, skeptical people, right? They're taught to yes. question, you know, <laughs> prove, prove this to me. And I'm a skeptical person by nature, so uh, that came to me very easily. But in order to lead a team, it was important for me to demonstrate that I had some competence in the area. And so getting back to my point about an engineer can learn anything, I felt like I could learn enough about any topic that I could competently converse with somebody about a topic such that I could get their respect. 
And so for me, it was it was all about building respect and giving the, the person I was dealing with the idea that I not only respected their ability to contribute, but I respected it because I understood it. And therefore, they would respect me to some degree. So that was a big part of my strategy in, in being a good manager was demonstrate that I really cared about what they were doing because I took the time to learn it or I took the time to delve into the weeds to some detail, to some degree. Now, the downside there is a lot of engineers will say, you know, you're, you're second guessing me or you're, you're, you know, you're micromanaging me. So that was a, a tendency I had to fight. It's an important thing to make sure that the people who are working for you realize that you really do want them to do the job. And from my standpoint, it was always about leveraging. I thought that even if I, even if I was the best engineer, which, you know, most engineers have, have a, a decent ego and they feel like they're pretty good at doing the things that they know about. Even if I was the best engineer on the program, didn't mean that I could maximize my output by doing that part of the engineering task. I could maximize my output by getting somebody else to do it, by leveraging my understanding of the situation to get somebody else to do it well. And I could count on them to do it well because engineers are, are given a pretty common basis. You know, I, I always talked about engineers as being the most um, the easiest to argue with because you have a, a, a common understanding of how you go about seeking the truth, understanding the, getting the best answer. Can you think of a, um, a team or a program where development went particularly smoothly and, and share with us what you think it was about that project or that team that allowed things to advance so well? Yeah, I'll give you a, a lot of examples come to mind, but the one I'll, I'll, I'll give you is the one that I, I worked on at iOmega, where we were working with a Japanese company, and uh, we were working on a distrog that was a, a new technology, and we had partnered with a Japanese company where they had split the design kind of in half. We were to do the, the electronics and servo part of it, and they were to do the mechanics, and we were to do the system integration. And um, we spent a lot of time on team building. On, on, when we established that project, we, we sent a, a team of us around the world to, to find a company to work with us. We went to companies in uh, Thailand and Hong Kong and Taiwan and Japan, which were the, the primary places where distrides were done. Um, and we, we picked a company that we thought had uh, cultural similarities to our company. And then we spent a lot of time on building a team. And the result of that was a, was a very high payoff in terms of being able to get through the difficulties that were demanded by this difficult project we were product we were designing. Uh, so a lot of it, that one was about selecting the right partner in terms of a company. And then once you did that, getting the team in place in the right positions and understanding their uh, divisional labor and the expectations in a way that everybody could sign up to and, and get the job done. That's great. Uh, do you remember, um, uh, were there any you know specific things that you did to build that team, to, to build the cohesiveness within the team? Yeah, a lot of it was about uh, meeting, face-to-face -face meetings, which oh, interesting. that was a bit of a, a, bit of a problem. And I've learned yeah. <laughs> how, to, how to do things not face-to-face. -face. So one of the things that is really important now is to, is to get better at these kinds of meetings. I used to, years ago, I established a thing I called my communication scale. And on that communication scale, 
where 10 was a face-to-face meeting and one was email. And you try to characterize all communication within that, that scale. This kind of a meeting, I, I rate it as a five. It's only half as good as a face-to-face meeting, and it was five times better than email. Now, uh, I decided you, we have to get better at this. So we have to be able to improve our ability to communicate using this, the one we're, you and I are using right now, video conferencing. And video conferencing has gotten a lot better than it was 20 years ago, obviously. So the, getting back to your question, we, we developed this teamwork, the teamwork by having face-to-face meetings. We brought their six or seven engineers to, to Colorado to meet with us for a week or two at a time. And we did likewise go to their facility for a week or two at a time, spaced over the period of a year and a half or, or so when this project took to get from beginning to end. That was instrumental in, in getting uh, the teamwork developed, not only because we could see each other and work with them face-to-face, but we can also do things outside of the meeting easily to get to know them a little bit and, and try to understand what motivated Excellent. them. Excellent. Excellent. All right. This this next question I'm I'm kind of excited about because I've never asked this question before. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this. Uh, are what are a few of the best questions that you have asked in your career that have led to successful projects? The best questions. Why are you doing this project? Why are you Why are you interested in doing this project? Trying to understand the motivation. So the question is to get at. What's your reason for being here? So that, I mean, part of this interview is about why did I become an engineer? So I think those are, that's a good question. That's a good starting point. Trying to understand the motivation of the person you're dealing with. Why, why are you doing this? I think that's one of the best questions. And then uh, the next question is, is one about how people think about things. My classic interview question that I use many, many times, maybe a hundred times or more on interviewing people was, to set up a, an intersection with a traffic light. And uh, first I would ask the interviewee whether you they're drive, they have a driver's license. Anybody who has a driver's license and has gone through an intersection. So then I would ask them to optimize that intersection. And I would listen for how they thought through the process. What were the things, what were the questions they asked, what were the assumptions they made, and then what, how would they attack the problem? So understanding how someone would attack the problem, that's, that's one of the best questions one can do to understand whether your team member or team in general is going to be able to do what you want them to do. That's fascinating. So you had this intersection, just, you know, any old intersection out on the street and, and you asked them to optimize it. What does that mean? Optimize it like for the flow of traffic, the maximize the number of cars that can get through that in any given time period. I drew a little picture and I, I said, uh, here's a, here's a major intersection and the houses, the residential area is located a mile in this direction, and the factory is located a mile in that direction. And, and your job is to figure out how to get the people from here to there and have them be satisfied with their commute. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I might steal that one. <laughs> that <laughs> that a, would be very a, fun to watch someone think through in an interview. It was very fun because almost nobody had ever thought of that before. And, sure, and, but everybody, yeah. Some engineers had, you know, there are a few engineers who said, oh, yeah, I said to stop by tonight. I dream about how I can make this better. <laughs> but most people had not really thought about it much. And so it was, I got a whole range of answers. But what I did get was uh, a peek into how, how that person would, would solve a problem. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, uh, currently, you're the president at Positivity Engineering in, in Boulder, Colorado. Is, is that your company? That's my company. And it's a, a consulting company where uh, we mostly do advising to smaller and medium companies about how they should set up their business or their processes or whatever. And this is for uh, predominantly uh, product development companies, manufacturing companies, or just generally businesses? Generally businesses, but it mostly is companies who, who develop products. But not exclusively okay. that. Sometimes we consult with uh, companies who are just looking at investment banking, you know, investment bankers who are looking at doing an investment in the company. Or oh, interesting. Like okay. It's a pretty broad. And because spectrum. you're an engineer, you, you can learn to advise anyone, right? <laughs> I think I can, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, in, in parallel with positivity engineering, you also work as an adjunct faculty instructor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, what, what trends are you seeing in engineering education these days, and what do you think is still missing? What I'm, one of the trends I'm seeing is that engineers today have increased capabilities, specifically mechanical engineering. So I teach a senior-level mechanical design course. And what I see today is that mechanical engineers are starting to do some of the things that I had to learn to do after I got out of engineering school. And specifically, I'm thinking about electronics and software. So typically now, any device that a mechanical engineer is going to design will have some electronics and some software. And it's important for mechanical engineers to become broader, to know enough about those areas that they can understand at least what needs to be done and when when they need to call in help or when they can do something on their own. And so I'm seeing that um, it, it's very common for um, high school students now to have written some software. When I was you know, in high school, I didn't write any software, but it's almost ubiquitous now. So people have a, it's important for engineers to have a, a broader background. And I'm seeing that trend. I'm, I'm in, I always encourage my students to, to take it to the next step become better at it, to understand what does it mean to, to hook up a, a, servo, you know, a, a, a rotary actuator to a, to a Raspberry Pi system. How do you do that? And how are you going to make it work? And uh, that's what's needed, a, a little broader understanding of what the complete picture is going to look like when, when your device is done. What are a couple of the biggest problems that you face at work these days? Uh, the biggest problem we face as a society, and it's a little less so in engineering, but to some degree in engineering too, is understanding how to get at the fundamental facts. How do you determine the truth of what you're trying to decide? And we see that in society broadly, and certainly in politics these days, but in generally coming up with a common set of information that, that one will be willing to accept is harder. And that is the thing that engineers are usually pretty good at, and we are trained to get to, you know, to only deal with the facts, only deal with the truth, only seek the truth. But that is something that in society is much harder, and social media has made that harder. Social media has made it easy to, to find something that will support any, any belief you have. So if you believe that um, I don't know, climate science isn't right, you can find some tidbits that will support that. And or so the that, earth is flat. Or the earth is flat. That too. I mean, any, any ridiculous thing, you can find support for that. Now, in high school or college, you know, you couldn't find anything that would support your, you know, these, these um, 
things that were not true. So it was easier to determine the truth. So now what I, what I tell my students is that it is a, incumbent upon your generation to figure out how to sort through the new information, the new ways that we get, we can assimilate information. It used to be when I was in college, you could get information by talking to somebody or by reading a book. That was about it. Maybe watching TV a little bit. But today, there are so many sources of information that it's very difficult to, we've evolved to be able to, I can look you in the eye and I can make a guess for whether you're telling me the truth or not. But I can't look at Facebook and, and do that, right? So right. the way, way you consume information now is way different than it was when, when I was younger. And figuring out how to to take that information, to get the information that will allow you to make good decisions about engineering designs or about how this particular thing that you're working on will improve society. Those are harder. Interesting. That's that's great insight. Well, Tom, I don't want to take up too much of your time, so uh, I'll, I'll let you go. But before I do, uh, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, my uh, email address is wilkie.toma, wilkietoma at gmail.com. You can get a hold of me there. Also, I'm on LinkedIn, so uh, I'll respond to any, uh, any LinkedIn requests that I get as well. Terrific. Well, thank you again so much for uh, for sharing some time with us and, and sharing your background and a little bit of engineering wisdom along the way. Thanks for your interview. Appreciate uh, the time with you. I'm Aaron Moncur, founder of Pipeline Design and Engineering. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a positive review. It really helps other people find the show. To learn how your engineering team can leverage our team's expertise in developing turnkey custom test fixtures, automated equipment, and product design, visit us at testfixturedesign.com. Thanks for listening.